um, because uh, the portion of, of scripture that we're going to be reading and we have been reading is so long, and because we're right in the middle of uh, the passion narrative of Christ, his last hours, uh, what I want to do, I want to do something a little bit different. We handed out um, the, the text this morning. I know a lot of you guys uh, might have different translation of the Bible, so if you have that, if you can pull that out. We've printed the text out today, and due to the length of the text and the gravity of the subject matter, I thought it'd be kind of fun for the next couple of weeks to invite people to come up and read the text for us. So let's stand as we read God's word. Mark 14, 32 to 72. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under God. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter followed him at a distance right into the court of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this testimony, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, 
You also were with the Nazarene Jesus, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Let's pray. This morning, God, as we look at probably one of the most intense scenes in the entire Bible, I pray that we would see your heart. I pray, God, that those of us who are just so indifferent about justice or indifferent about wrongs being made right, or maybe even indifferent about our own sin, that you would show us what you've done to reconcile us. I pray that you would free people today of their past and free people today of even their future, Lord. Some of those things, those heavy trips that we put on ourselves. I pray that we would find our place in this story and we would see how much you love us, God. Pray that you would anoint me and you would use me this morning to bring glory to Jesus. I need your help desperately. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as you were reading and as we were reading this text, um, you did hear rightly. In case you were wondering, there is a streaker right in the middle of the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus's, uh, Jesus's account in Mark's gospel. I mean, it's, it's, it's so odd. Maybe not to San Franciscans. You're used to this. Like, oh, a streaker right in the middle of the passion narrative. No big deal. We see that all the time. But if you're reading this, it's, I don't even know if it's like comic relief. Right in the middle of the heaviest section of scripture recorded in the Bible, Jesus goes through his agony in the garden. He's arrested, an ear flies off, and all of a sudden a streaker runs through the scene. If this was a play, this would have been awesome. Like what is that, why, why that naked man running through the scene in Mark's gospel? What we see here. In this heavy, heavy section recorded in the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus going into his last hours before his death. And if you've been following along over the last, I don't know, a little over a year, Jesus looks different here. He looks different. Different to us who have been observing him the whole time in the book of Mark. Some commentators have tried to relieve the scandalous impact of this scene in Gethsemane by taking the emphasis off of Mark's account and placing it on maybe Matthew's account, who simply says that Jesus was grieving in the garden. Or um, Luke and John's account, which omit the reference to Jesus' mental torment altogether. Mark's account of Gethsemane is intense, emotional, and raw. Other commentators use Mark's account of Gethsemane to discredit claims of Jesus' deity altogether. Like, look at this man. There's no way he can be divine. Look at the way he crumbles in the garden. 
Before the Garden of Gethsemane, before this scene here, just several verses before this, Jesus seems untouchable. We've been talking about that for a while. Jesus seems untouchable, in control, in complete control. He seems steadfast and immovable. This strikes me every single time I read this portion of Scripture. I mean, this is the Jesus who, in Mark's gospel, walks on water and heals a man who lives in the caves, who cannot be tamed by anyone because he's possessed by hundreds of demons. And Jesus walks up to him and heals him completely. And Jesus, in Mark's story of Jesus, Jesus cannot be outmaneuvered. He cannot be outdebated. He cannot be outsmarted. He's the greatest teacher who ever lived, has more power against natural and supernatural forces, power over the human heart, and piercing insight into the human soul. But here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus all but breaks down, and he wants to abort his mission. He wants to not go through with the cross. What's going on here? I want to consider two things this morning. The first thing I want to consider is the heart of the Son and the will of the Father. The heart of the Son and the will of the Father. The heart of the Son in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the face of betrayal and the trial for his life, and the will of the Father to send him there. Why did the Father send him through this? So first, the heart of the Son. One of my favorite commentators that I've been reading throughout this Gospel of Mark is N.T. Wright. And in his commentary on Mark, he says that the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane is so intimate and frightening that you feel almost embarrassed to be onlookers. I think that's true. It's like Jesus is breaking down here. He has a total meltdown, a nervous breakdown, and you're witnessing it. You're witnessing him becoming unraveled. He's been in total control up to this point. Now it's like his whole world is falling apart. Wright went on to say that Socrates didn't even die like this. The Greek philosopher Socrates went to his death calm and in control, still teaching steadily right up to the end. So this was no Greek heroic tale that Mark is writing. And the story is not typical Jewish uh, martyrdom death either that you find throughout the Old Testament. Jesus' death here is unique. And up to this point, Jesus has been in total control of everything. They question him about not being able to forgive sins. Like, you can't forgive sins, Jesus. And he answers them by saying, okay, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven. You can't prove it. Or if I tell this paralytic who's an, who is just like lowered through the roof, who cannot walk at all, and everybody knows he can't walk, what's easier to say, this man's sins are forgiven, or take up your mat and walk? Well, obviously, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Okay, so you know that I can forgive sins. Young man, take up your mat and go home. And the man stands up, and he goes home. And everyone's astonished. When Jesus is overcome by emotion, because this leper, whose skin was just falling off, When this leper begs Jesus to restore him, Jesus doesn't just stand there powerless with nothing to say or nothing to do. He touches the man and restores his skin completely. He did the same thing when he was standing over this little girl who was dead. And the mourners were downstairs weeping and crying. And he looks at this little girl. He grabs her by her little hand and says, little girl, wake up. And she does. It's like Jesus is in total control. He's walking with thousands of people in the middle of nowhere, and they get hungry, and there's no McDonald's around or anything like that. They only have a couple loaves and some fish, 
and Jesus feeds everyone miraculously. And when Jesus' disciples are caught in the middle of the storm, he walks out to greet them on the water. He can do anything. But in Gethsemane, something different is going on, something completely different. In verse 32, it says, and when they went to the place called Gethsemane, he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And then he took Peter, James, and John, and he's done this quite a bit. He's taken them on the Mount of Transfiguration. These three were in the room when he raised the little girl from death. And he began to be troubled. Listen, he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground. He collapsed and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. This is Jesus' dark hour. This is his dark night of the soul. Maybe you've had one of these where you feel as though your world is crumbling in all around you. That unless God or someone else doesn't intervene at that moment, you can die right there on the spot. You might have had one of those nights. You might have had one of those periods in your life. This is what the Garden of Gethsemane was for Jesus. The Garden of Gethsemane means wine press. It's where grapes would be crushed and pressed for wine. And that's exactly what this was. This is where Jesus began to be crushed. This is where Jesus began to experience what he would go through as a ransom for our sins. Remember, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus said this to everyone. This is kind of like the pillar verse. This is the the central verse in all of Mark's gospel. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Last week, we talked about the Last Supper, the last meal he would share with his disciples. At the end of this last meal, he would actually hold up a glass of wine. And when he held this glass of wine, he said this, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. See, before his blood could be poured out for many, many before he, his life could be a ransom for our sins, he had to be crushed. Jesus had to be crushed. And not just physically, The cross was excruciating. We will talk about that next week. The cross was excruciating. Actually, that word means from the cross. They could not make up, they had to make up a word because of the agony of the cross. Words didn't fit. Like, let's make up the word. Excruciating. From the cross. It was painful. But there was something more going on in the Garden of Gethsemane. Something that caused Jesus to be overwhelmed with sorrow. He walks into the garden and something hits him like smelling salts. He became became overwhelmed with sorrow. Something terrified him with surprise, one commentator writes, as soon as he entered the garden. Something that made him collapse on the ground. Something that made him literally sweat blood, Dr. Luke tells us. Why does Jesus, who has foreseen his death and marched resolutely to Jerusalem to meet his death, quail before his death? The answer must be that Jesus is aware of facing something more than simply his own death. Because Jesus has been talking about his death this whole time. In the Garden of Gethsemane, what what comes into clarity is there's something bigger than his, simply his physical death going on here. And he even verbalizes that awareness. I mean, you have to. When something this intense goes on, something has to give. And so he shouts, 
My soul is very sorrowful even to death. And this is not hyperbole. When Jesus says that he was sorrowful even to the point of death, it means he could have literally died right there on the spot. It means his affliction was so great. His affliction was so great in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing what he would face on the cross, that he was sinking under the weight of it. His human heart almost couldn't handle the pressure. His human heart almost gave out. He almost died right there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And look what happens next in verse 35 and 36. It says, he went a little farther and he fell on the ground and he prayed, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he says this, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. So I don't know if you've ever been so desperate to pray, God, you can do anything. You can surely do this. Have you ever prayed that, those desperate prayers? Like, God, okay, listen, let's just start off with who you are. You're God, and you can do anything. Because you can do anything, could you do this small thing? This is exactly what Jesus says. God, you can do anything. Could you remove this cup? Is there any other way to redeem humanity than going to the cross? Is there any other way? But he says, nevertheless, not as I will. Is there any other way to remove this cup from me? That I don't have to drink this cup. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. This is what N.T. Wright meant, I think, when he said, when you read this, you feel almost embarrassed to be an onlooker. Jesus has collapsed in sorrow and is now crying out like a little boy, like a son, begging his daddy to change his mind or find a way so he doesn't have to do what is asked of him. Daddy, please, that's what, Abba, Daddy, is there any other way? Is there any other way that I don't have to, where we can redeem humanity, but I don't have to drink this cup? Dad, please. Up to this point, Jesus has been prophesying about his death, his betrayal, his abandonment of the disciples. But here in the garden, going into his death, he staggers, he falls down, he wavers for a moment, Then he asks not to go through with it. See, Jesus wasn't wrestling with new knowledge about his death. He knew he was going to die. He always knew about the cross. What was happening is his human heart, his soul was receiving new experience, an experience that was not familiar to him, that he never, ever had before until the Garden of Gethsemane. And this experience was not a familiar one to him. What was this experience? And this is what makes the Garden of Gethsemane so horrifying. What Jesus was beginning to experience, what he was beginning to sample, was the reality of our sin being placed on his shoulders and what that experience really felt like. And we see this in his prayer. He said, would you, is there any other way that this cup can pass from me? See, the cup that Jesus is referring to here is is an Old Testament metaphor. This is an Old Testament metaphor that means the wrath of God poured out on human evil. Is there any other way that I don't have to take your wrath? See, many people don't like to think about this. I get in conversations throughout the city about this. Many people don't like to think about this, but there will be a judgment. 
Like, I, there's probably many of you like, well, psh, come on, there probably won't be a judgment. I mean, I think when we die, we die, right? And the judgment, if there is, it'll be kind of fair. It'll be whatever, you know? I'll get in because I, I, I make good money and I pay taxes and I, and I, and I, and I volunteer at a nonprofit and stuff like that. I mean, I'm totally in. And then we don't think there's, or we just kind of blow it all off. There's not going to be a judgment. There is no God and there will not be a judgment. It's all settled. It's done. There will not be a final judgment. But I want to argue that there has to be a final judgment. Miroslav Volf, the professor of theology at Yale, wrote in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. He says this, and I love this section of, of this book. He says, it takes the quiet of a suburb to believe in a God who refuses to judge. It takes the quiet of a suburb. It takes peaceful streets and good public transportation to believe that. He says, he says quote, in a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea that because God is love, he will not judge, will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. There must be a judge and a judgment for all the injustice in the world. There must be. God has to settle the score and he has to punish and be angry against injustice. And if he's not angry against injustice, that God will not be worthy of our worship. And if there's not a judgment, what hope does this world really have? However, the other side of that is if there is a judge and there is a judgment, what hope do I have? What hope do you have? See, we all know that we don't live up to our own standards. I mean, we can't even keep a diet, let alone keep the golden rule. And you know that. Even just by your own standards, you fail. We hope that if there is a judgment, if, what hope do we have? If there is a judgment, what hope do we have? What hope do you have if we can't even keep our own rules? See, what makes Jesus' death different is that his death would bear this judgment. It would bear this anger, the anger that God has against sin. It would bear his wrath. God has wrath against sin. He has to have wrath against sin if he's a God of justice and a God of love. He would take it as the one who was not deserving of it. And this is what almost crushes him. Jesus has never been out of fellowship with the Father for eternity. I know that's hard to think back. But from eternity has never had broken fellowship with the Father. And what bearing the sin of humanity means is the wrath of God, the justice of God, and the separation of God. And it almost destroys him right there on the spot. See, in the garden, Jesus was facing the utter horror of one who lives wholly for the Father and with the Father in perfect love relationship from eternity past. This love was complete and was never broken. It was never distorted. And not only to have this love broken and alienated, but Jesus was going to come face to face with receiving from that lover all his eternal anger and wrath, and he didn't deserve it. And the irony of, of the Garden of Gethsemane is that Jesus goes to his father in prayer for comfort. But instead of comfort from the father, Jesus gets a sample of the cup. What the father does, in a sense, is pour a little sample of the cup of the wrath of God. And he swirls it around, and he smells it, and he takes 
a sip of it, and it almost destroys him. He samples the cup, the cup of the wrath of God. He reaches out to his dad, his Abba, three times. Is there any other way? And the father says no. Then he goes to his three closest friends. Could you guys stay awake and watch with me for like an hour? And all of them say no. And one of his followers, Judas, is on his way to betray him with a mob. See, in the garden, Jesus is completely alone. His last moments of freedom, everyone has left him. He can run if he wants to. He can just leave. No one would know. His disciples are asleep. Everyone has abandoned him. Everyone has rejected him. He can leave at any moment. And the Father even gives him a sample of the cup of what he must go through. The wrath of God, the bearing of the sins of the world. In the garden, Jesus had to choose. He had to will to become the sin bearer for humanity. He was a, it was a choice. He chose to die. He submitted to the Father's will. He prayed, not my will, but your will be done. And in the garden, he sampled the cup of the wrath of God, and he chose to drink it to the bottom for you and for me. See, I think this section of Scripture, we can identify with the heart of Jesus. We see in living color the humanity of Jesus. See, Satan battles for every single human heart in here, every single human heart in this city. And all humans are hardwired to try to save themselves at all cost. Look at the naked guy. Like, take my clothes. I'm out of here. I'm not going to get caught here. Even if it means I'm the only streaker in the Bible. I'll bear that. We will save ourselves at all cost. The disciples and the naked guy serve as a negative example of this instinct. But you know what we see here? Jesus battles with saving himself as well. He battles and he asks if there's another way, but in the end, there is no other way. No matter how painful, he obediently submits to God's will. No matter how difficult it is, he submits to God's will. If I was making a movie, I would, at this point, flash to the scene of Jesus' first miracle. His first miracle was at a wedding. Weddings are really fun places to be at. It was a wedding in Cana. They ran out of wine. Jesus turned water into probably the best wine ever created. Everyone was joyful, glad, toasting the host saying, people normally bring out the junk wine at the end when we've had enough to drink, but you saved the best till right now. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, no guests are there. His friends have left him. He's all alone. Everyone abandons him. And Jesus has another glass of wine. But this glass is the cup of suffering. The cup of the wrath of God. And he drinks it all alone, all the way down. See, this is love. You have not known a love like this. That's the first point. The second point is this, the will of the Father. Okay, so all this talk about what Jesus has done for us, what he went through, I would imagine some of you guys are thinkers in here. And you're probably thinking right now, what kind of father is that? 
What kind of father, who would let their son go through so much pain and so much agony? One writer infamously called this divine child abuse. Isn't the father abusing the son? By killing Jesus, aren't you just perpetuating violence and wrongdoing? Doesn't Christ's death on our behalf compound rather than take sin away? I mean, you're killing someone innocent. If Jesus was truly innocent, and if this was the Father's will, wouldn't the Father be guilty of, at best, cruelty, and at worst, injustice? I believe that we find the answer to that question in the trial that Jesus is forced into. Judas walks up to Jesus and betrays him with a kiss, and the word that Mark uses for kiss is a very affectionate word. Judas affectionately walked up to Jesus, affectionately kissed him with a, probably a horrible, sinister smile on his face, and the mob came and arrested him. And there's a fight, someone loses an ear, all the disciples run. Jesus is arrested, chained, and then brought before a council of chief priests, elders, and scribes. And they tried to get people to testify against Jesus, but no one comes forward. Then there's this one allegation that they, that they, that they dream up. Oh, oh I, I remember Jesus said something like, he would destroy the temple that is made with hands, and then he would rebuild it three days later. But Jesus never said that. Jesus says that the temple would be destroyed. He never said he was going to destroy it. Because Jesus didn't say that, eyewitness testimony didn't agree so they had someone testify, well, no, I thought he said this, and no one agreed, so they dismissed it. Then they asked him, defend yourself. Who are you? And he remained silent. And then finally, the high priest asked Jesus in verse 61, are you the Christ? Just tell us, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. <laughs> okay, which is, has these overtones of what God called himself to Moses when Moses said, who shall I say sent me? And then God said, say, I am. So there is those overtones. So he says, I am. He doesn't stop there. And he goes, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. It's like everyone's going, oh, you've done it now. <laughs> Not only I am, but I will be judging the heavens and the earth, and I will come with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What's your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. What just happened? See, the high priest turns to Jesus at this point in the narrative. Jesus has not publicly announced that he was Messiah. Every time someone tries to, he tells him to be quiet. He asks him, are you the Christ, which means the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior? Are you the Savior? And then he says, the Son of the Blessed, which is the Hebraic way of saying the Son of God. And Jesus responds, I am, which again has these overtones, these echoes of divinity. And not only that, Jesus says, I am the son of man, and I will be seated at the right hand of power in the coming kingdom, and I will be coming with the clouds of heaven. And what Jesus is saying here is that what he stands up and says in this courtroom, what he stands up and says to the high priest, he says, I am the judge. 
In a court right now, yes. On trial, yes. Am I being judged? Yes, but listen, I am the true judge. I am the final judge. Now back to our question. Is killing Jesus a form of child abuse, divine child abuse? Does it perpetuate violence and injustice by killing an innocent man? The answer is yes. If God kills Jesus, then yes, it's divine child abuse. If Jesus was a third party, then yes. But he's not a third party. This is why they start to beat his face in. Jesus is God reconciling the world to himself. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Again, Wolf, this time in another book called Free of Charge. The father would be abusing the son and committing divine wrongdoing rather than taking away human wrongdoing if Christ were a third party beyond God who was wrong, who was wrong and humanity who wronged God. But he isn't. He stands firmly on the side of the forgiving God, not in between the forgiving God and forgiving humanity. In Christ, the Apostle Paul wrote, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. This is what he says. So this is not Christ was reconciling an angry God to a sinful world, and not Christ was reconciled a sinful world to a loving God. Rather, this is what it is, God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And what we see at this trial is Jesus is the judge who's being judged. Jesus is God in flesh, taking the wrath of God upon himself to redeem us. That's, why he tells, that's what he tells the Sanhedrin, and that's why they rip their clothes and begin to punch him in the face. Jesus is God, the judge of the world, being judged in our place. Do you see how important the doctrine of the Trinity is? It's not simply a detached doctrine. To understand the Trinity is to understand the gospel. The justice of God must be satisfied. The forgiveness of our sins must be purchased. God doesn't just forgive sins by saying, poof, your sins are gone. Fine, your sins are gone. He can't do that as a just God. Someone has to pay. And that someone is Jesus. And what you see happening in the garden and what you see happening in this trial is that Jesus, God in Christ, reconciling a world to himself, taking our sin and our shame. If, again, if you don't think that there's a judgment, if you don't think there's a right and a wrong, if you do not believe that, and I know that people get hung up like, oh my gosh, church, all they talk about is sin and sin and sin and sin and sin. It takes us understanding and seeing our sin to understand what Christ has done to forgive us, that we can live in freedom from our past, that we can live in freedom from our future, that we can be free, that we can have a new identity. That we can be everything that God has designed us to be. That was the Father's will. That was the Son's obedience. And in Philippians 2, it says that it was Jesus' joy at that point to go to the cross. 
when he settled in his heart, I will go to the cross to bear the sins of humanity. It was the joy. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. You and I think of sin as like, I stole something. You and I think of sin as like, I just said a bad word. You and I think of sin as sexual and orientation. Sin is a lot deeper than that. Because of sin, you do have sorrows. You do have grief. You have identity issues. You have trust issues. Because of sin, you have self-image issues. You have all of these things because of sin. And because of the cross, it doesn't mean that, okay, now, so God said you're forgiven for all those little bad things you did. No, you get a brand new identity. He's bore your grief and carried your sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement for our peace, for our Peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned away, everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And this is what came into shocking clarity in the garden. Jesus was going to bear the weight and the wrath of our rebellion, our sheepish astray, our turning to our own way, our making central our comfort, making central our lives. And he goes through with it. He goes through with the cross to reconcile us, to save us, and to bring us back to God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would that we would get this, Lord, that we would, we would get what you've done to redeem us and what you've done to save us and what you've done to set us free from sins that were committed against us, from sins that we've done. But thank you that not only do you free us from sins, but you bear our grief, our sorrow, that you bring us to God. Thank you that we can have a relationship with God, the living God, because of the cross. Thank you that, Lord, even though that garden almost crushed you, you went forward. And you became the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. May that explode in our heart, God. May that transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. May that make us people who desire justice in this world, but can rest knowing that you're going to set all wrongs right. Do that in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.